Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. If you would like a one-on-one conversation to help you get clear on what you want in life and what's in your way of getting there, visit theandygrant.com slash talk and book a no-obligation, no-cost appointment. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. You know, I've done uh, a, a number of episodes uh, on, on race this year, and I, I wonder, oh, have, have I talked about this enough? Is it overkill? But then just more shit keeps happening. And, <laughs> you know, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to, uh, my, my guest today is someone I, I, I chatted with just briefly, like I, I do with potential guests. And it really just felt like we, we hit it off and uh, really enjoyed talking to him and getting to know him. So, um, man, my guest today is author and motivational speaker Ishmael Brown. Welcome to the show, Ishmael. Andy, how are you doing this evening? Thank you, sir. Very good. You know, I was, I was kind of blindly beating around the bush earlier, but, you know, this week yet another black man has, was, he was shot seven times in the back, uh, mm-hmm. Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. And yep. I, I was looking that up to make sure I had the name right in the town. And then I see mm-hmm. that a, a day before, a black man was shot to death in Louisiana. And I... Yep. I and I, I didn't know that at all. So, you know, it feels, uh, you know, I feel like an idiot saying, oh, this summer of troubles continue. And it's not because that it's not it hasn't been the summer. It's been right. on a time. You know? right. Yeah, there you go. So with all this, with with protesting, with Black Lives Matter, seemingly at its crescendo, at its peak of people, you know, of all races paying attention and yet. You know, the violence keeps happening. People, I mean, getting shot seven times in the back. I just, I don't understand how that freaking, what anyone is thinking as a police officer doing that. But uh, with all that and my rambling, I'm not sure how I'm feeling. So how are you feeling right now? Uh, I want to start by first saying that, you know, there still needs to be um, a mandate to arrest the murderers of Breonna Taylor. We have not forgotten about that. Um it's unfortunate that it's taken this long uh, to receive some semblance of justice. So my heart and my prayers go out to her family, um, her friends, and just everyone that's out there that's continuously fighting the fight to ensure that those murderers are apprehended. Um, moving forward to Jacob Blake, and thank God he survived. But what I think about, this is a very unique situation because we've never seen it from the survivor's standpoint the individual who the harm was done against. So it's going to be on the, uh, the DA's office to really stand up and take a uh, stance against injustice done towards black people. And I'm very curious to see how that plays off. Um, again, I'm thankful that he has survived. My heart goes out to his children who are able to witness such a heinous crime committed against their father. I just think about the PTSD they may experience moving forward just at the sight of a police officer, the anxiety that they, you know, it's heartbreaking. Um, But to circle back to myself and what I'm feeling like it's, it's beyond frustration. There's a tiredness, but there's still the willingness to fight and to speak out and to be an advocate for men, women, and children who look like me. We've been doing this since the beginning of time. And I think 2020 was just, you know, enough is enough with the entire world basically on a standstill because of COVID-19. That's been the blessing of it is that everyone is forced to take in these regurgitated news cycles and see what's been going on in our community since the inception of time. So that's the upside of it. Um, Again, you know, just the frustration is building, but I think it's a matter of adjusting our reaction to once we feel disrespected and how we go about handling these, these heinous crimes and these acts that are done against us and just stand up and go get some type of action in regards to policy change, uh, voting for our local leaders and doing things in accordance to what's going to be understood from a political standpoint. Okay. And, 
you know, th- this is not a new show. By the time this airs, things could be uh, clear about the situation in Kenosha. But, you know, a- as of right now, we've just seen this, this really ending of the, of the situation. And uh, Jacob has turned his back on police and heads to a car, which I assume is his, and, and, and is shot while he's, like, getting in his car or you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I can guess and make assumptions that the story is, oh, well, he was disobeying police orders. They afraid they were afraid he was grabbing a gun, whatever it might be. But the the one thing, the one thing that strikes me is, even if I was ignoring a police officer and and walked away, I have no fear of being shot in the back seven times. Right. And and that is the I think the tremendously telling part of this country. Like there, there's mm-hmm. really there's these two very separate experiences of interacting with police. There's two different Americas and it's triggering for me because I've been assaulted by police physically Um, in the front yard of my home. I was 18 years old. There was a uh, disturbance at my home between, you know, my parents and the police were called and my front door was kicked in. And at that standpoint, I don't know what's going on. I'll sleep and I just rush into action because I feel as if I need to protect my home from whatever that outside threat may or may not be. So as I get outside, I see it is my stepfather and he's with these police officers. Um, Then a physical altercation ensues between him and I. Then the police attack me. Physically attack me. Um, it's a Sunday morning. Uh, my neighbors are home. They're beginning to come outside. My mother's screaming. My sister's screaming. Um, it's four on one. I'm not resisting. You know, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, please stop hitting me. And it got to the point where, you know, I was tased several times. My mom was um, an employee of the uh corrections office i don't want to say the official name but she was a officer of their correction one of their correctional facilities and she's very understanding of how you know these type of situations are supposed to be handled and it was just an abuse of power i was apprehended and arrested and i was taken to jail was that your first experience with police officers in 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 any way from a brute force perspective yes Um, we've had interactions previously, you know, being pulled over, being harassed, um, being asked to step out of a vehicle, um, for having a busted tail light, you know, things along those lines. Do you have guns in here? Do you have drugs in here? You know, just being overly interrogated. But that again was my very first and I pray my last physical altercation with police. Okay. All right. Good. So it, it was the last and, and you know, did that, did that experience turn you, were you more, uh, I don't know, anti-police, fearful of police. Like how, how did it change your perception of the police it, or if, if it did? Yeah, it did. It, uh, I was fearful for my life. Like, you know, there's always been a disconnect uh, with the black community and the police force just in general. But I think we all are warned against, you know, these type of situations occurring. But once it actually happens to you, there's a sense of shock and panic. And again, it, like even on my mugshot, my face is bruised. Uh, I'm bleeding from my forearms as I was slammed on concrete. And like I said, tased multiple times while being cuffed. So it's just that obsessive force that was demonstrated towards me. And like I said, my mom had to watch all of that. Mm-hmm. So imagine the helplessness there. And I just think about, I could have easily been a hashtag. I could have been on the back of a t-shirt. You know, it could have been me. So it's just, there's this innate fear and also like anxiety when I see police officers. And so does that continue um, when, when you see other black people being attacked, b- being killed? Do you, you know, have mm-hmm. your own PTSD and trauma from that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a reminder every single time you don't get over it. You just think about, man, I just thank God that I was able to, you know, survive my situation and my um, altercation. But, you know, it doesn't, feel any better that it's happening to anyone else you know because those are families that are going to be grieving those are children that are growing without parents and growing up and understanding that hey this could happen to me what are some of the stereotypes about being black being a black male in america that that you grew up with and 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 impacted you um 
you know, I'm, I'm wondering if there are stereotypes that, that you, you notice and you follow, or there are stereotypes that you, you hear and you kind of reject. Oh, I think, you know, growing up, you naturally buy into those stereotypes because it's a, you know, it's a conditioning that I have to be three times better than my white colleagues or my white counterparts and peers. Um, there is this element of, you know, I, I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want to end up in prison. Um, I don't want to end up a victim of, you know, crime and criminality as a whole. So you spend your whole life attempting to combat that in addition to being raised with a lack of empathy, not being able to express what you're feeling internally. And there's a sense of being disengaged with those around you because you're internalizing all of these things. And then there's this whole other aspect of it where you don't feel as if anyone can understand what you're experiencing, what you're going through. And then compact that with the teaching of you're a man, you're strong, you don't feel, you don't cry. Who does that? And you become a ticking time bomb, just waiting to implode before you start exploding on all of the relationships and people around you who actually do love you and mean you well, or there's just this fury and this anger that's picked up inside of you because of those stereotypes and because of the conditioning that goes along with those. And of the stereotypes that you were cognizant of growing up, are they all still in place? No, I had to do a lot of work to be able to shed that thinking and get rid of that perspective. Um, like That's why I love the name of your podcast, Real Men Feel. That is very valid. Um, and it just makes me more cognizant of communicating and articulating that very sentiment to the generations behind me and even the generations around and ahead of me because some men never get that lesson. Yeah. They never crack the uh, glass ceiling and have the understanding that it's okay to feel. It's okay to communicate who you are and what you're going through. Plenty of men I talk to recognize that that man box and the stereotypes that men are supposed to live up to and not feel and not emote and not cry. But it does seem when I talk to, to black men that it, it's all that of being masculine. And then there's more for being black. Like you're, mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're supposed to be even tougher. You're supposed to show even less emotion, right? Does that, right? is that accurate? Yeah. No, that's pretty accurate. And just think about how that impacts you in dating, how that impacts you, you know, just across the variety of relationships, regardless of the dynamic. Like, all you know how to do is exemplify this one essence of self. And we're humans. We are naturally uh, prone to evolution. We're very uh, complex beings. So to tell me, and instilling me that I have to be this at all times, it's sickening. Why do you think the, the limitations, the boundaries of what a black man is, is even tighter than what a, a white man is? Like, is, is it coming from overall white culture? Is it, is it coming from black culture onto yourself as a black man? Wow. Now that's a heavy question. Um, I think it's, most of the things, you know, when to be accepted by the masses, um, when to fit into certain spaces. Uh, we could use corporate America, for example, uh, with my hair. I never had hair my entire life. My mom always told me that you're going to struggle to find employment if you grow your hair. You know, ensure that you have a low, nice, clean cut, keep your face shaved all of that because you're going to be discriminated against. Those are the type of conversations you have to have within our households. Mm. Fast forward to, you know, graduate college, I step into my first career job and I say, you know what, I'm growing my hair because now I'm in the door. I've already proven what my value is to this company. You're not going to tell me any differently. Now I'm going to be me because I think that is a challenge that we're faced with as the people. How do we step into these corporate arenas and be our whole selves? When historically we have not been accepted, when you look at the executive boards and the leadership, you don't see people who look like us. Now, there are some companies who are a little bit more diverse, but are they inclusive? And what I mean by inclusive, are they inclusive in regards to the decision making when it comes to the direction of the company, the values of the company, the ethics and so forth in regards to the hiring? That's the disparity. 
So for me, I vow to be my complete and true self in every space that I'm in. And I value that because there's a wholeness because I have to be able to look myself in the mirror day in and day out and be at peace with it as who I am is not controlled by the perception or the opinions of others. I, I hear that. I guess what, what, what I really want to ask about is, is as a young man, that this, this message of keep your emotions inside, right? That, that perhaps, you know, being angry is the only emotion or even maybe even angry, angry, you can't show that. Are you just supposed to be stoic all the time? Show no emotion. That, that does that, does that feel like it came from mm -hmm. black culture around you or, or maybe it was black, black culture saying, don't show any emotion because fear of the greater white culture around you would, would punish you for showing any emotion that does that make any sense? No, it makes sense. In my experience, it was taught to me from my community okay. as to how to handle myself um, within certain spaces, um, how to carry myself. And within the household, for example, like I grew up in a household, a single parent household, where it was myself, my younger sister and my mother. My father did not live in the household. Um, there were periods of time where we did not speak to each other, spanning, you know, year plus. So for me, there was the expectation to be that man within the household. And how does a man exemplify himself through this stoic understanding of life that, you know, there's a toughness to me. I have it figured out. So that's where it came from in my experience. Gotcha. And hmm, I get, you think it was taught to you as a way to keep you safe or just as a way to, that just, this is just how it's supposed to be. Like no one's ever questioned it. I think it's a defense mechanism. Like this is how you get through life. You don't allow anyone to obtain control over your emotions. There's a stoicness and the toughness, because as a man, you're supposed to be the protector, the provider, and all of these other masculine like characteristics for the home. So it's a tandem combination of those things. So your, your, your book, it's really your, your memoir. It's called my own worst enemy, a black man's American story. So what are some of the ways that you were your own worst enemy? Oh, a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of self-deprecating. Um, I wasn't the greatest fan of who I was. Um, a lot of self-sabotaging, buying into those stereotypes and acting accordingly, not being able to get in contact with my own feelings and emotions. I just did not have the words to describe them or what I was going through. So for me, it was just me subscribing to this idea of titanism, that I don't feel anything. And like I said, this hatred that I had about myself that just manifested from childhood well into my adult years. And those were all the things that combined to make me my own worst enemy. So you said you weren't a fan of who you were and actually you even hated yourself. Were you, was this like conscious awareness in the moment or more of a, in hindsight, you see this? It was a hindsight thing. I had to go to therapy to really get a grasp of what my actions were doing to self. I could see what it was doing to others and, you know, keeping everyone at bay, not allowing anyone to demonstrate an essence of love towards me because I just seen so many particular experiences where, you know, family members had done me wrong or done my family wrong, my immediate family. I've seen friends turn their backs on, you know, my household when we were in need and, you know, specifically being homeless. Um, we were staying with a family member. There was an altercation between that family member and my mother. And that family member said, you know what, you and your kids got to go. And I remember being a kid and just, you know, seeing all of my sister's toys being thrown into the front yard. And it was like, for me, if a family member would do that to you, a stranger would kill me. Mm. And that was the mindset that just 
It was a seed that was planted that just manifested in the way that I viewed relationships because I had this concept in my mind that I can make it through life by myself. I don't need anyone. I just need time and my own ability to continue to push me forward and propel me through life. And that was a part of being my own worst enemy because I wasn't warned. I didn't allow myself to trust others or give people the benefit of doubt to even prove me wrong. I just wrote them off from jump. Gotcha. So how did you come to realize that you were your worst enemy? Through therapy, um, being able to identify my own wrongdoings in these situations, again, not allowing people the benefit of doubt to express their love, to show me that they were different than, you know, that particular family member, um, being able to open up my heart and to one, forgive myself for uh, the self-deprecation, not believing in who I was, um, subscribing to those false ideas of Titanism and, you know, being tough. I had to forgive me. That's where it started. And being able to grow from there through therapy, through having these conversations and really going in depth with how all of it was rooted in my childhood. And it really put a blockade around me and served as a defense mechanism so I wouldn't get hurt. That was my entire fear of being hurt, being let down by people. Because again, you know, you've been done wrong at such an early age. It's like a tattoo on the mind. Mm. You may not always can see it, but you know, it's there. And that's what it was for me. It was a reinforcement of don't trust anyone. No one really cares about you. Continue to push through life. You got this. You can take on this whole big world out there by yourself. And through therapy, like I said, I had to just shed all of that. I had to start by forgiving myself, um, telling myself that I loved me, which was a journey. <laughs> um, and extending forgiveness, you know, to that family member and to other people around me who I felt as if disappointed me, one being my father uh, specifically. I set these expectations for individuals and if they didn't meet those expectations oh i don't want anything to do with them the role that i played in that was that i failed to communicate what my expectations were so how could they ever know what i need from them across all of these relationships in order for us to have a fruitful relationship if i don't ever take the time to inform them of that so that was my journey of shedding that enemy. Yeah. So, so it sounds like from a really young age, it was just embedded in your mind that, that the world's really an unsafe place. You, you've, you've got you, and that's all you've got. And, and also you're this, you're this emotionally tightened being, you know, not mm-hmm. really willing, you're not encouraged to feel, you're not willing to feel because feelings lead to you getting hurt. So mm-hmm. what, what happened to get you to finally open up and, and even consider it? pursuing therapy i remember being in college this was my junior year it was during the summer i went to the university of central florida also known as the harvard of the south go knights and (laughs) i had just completed a test um, in our testing center you know it gives you your grade right away i passed i had a b um and i was walking from our student union on this this large segment of grass called memory mall heading to my car and i just started hysterically crying that was very uncharacteristic of the way i carried myself it was shocking i couldn't stop and it was beyond concerning at that point and to give you a little context as to how i carried myself emotionally I didn't see my mom cry until I was 17 years old. And I kind of looked at her like, what's wrong with you? You need to get it together because she never exemplified that. So again, back to being fed these stereotypes, I also got a piece of it from my mother because she was so tough and she felt as if, you know, I have to raise a man. 
I'm not one, but I'm going to do certain things to ensure that he knows how to take on adversity in life. And that was one of them. Um, now, in hindsight, you know, years later, she and I admire her for doing it. She said, you know, that was one of her biggest mistakes, not showing you that emotion and letting you know it's OK to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just made you so hard and so serious. And, you know, that wasn't the intent. Um, so I just thought I was incredibly brave of her. But back to that moment, I just couldn't stop myself from crying. And I didn't know why. I was going through this. I didn't know why I was crying. And I just felt utterly embarrassed because people were walking by me like, hey, are you okay? You know, I didn't know what to say. At that moment, I didn't have words. And in that very moment, I recognized that I needed help. Like, I can't continue to carry everything that's on my shoulders. I can't continue to take on this world by myself. I need help. It is fantastic that was that, that was your decision. Because for, for so many men, for so many people, they'll get to that point of, of feeling bad. Emotions are bubbling over. And they'll choose some sort of uh, practice of addiction to cover it up. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that you sought help, I, I, I just, you know, commend you greatly. And, you know, I, I, I tell people this all the time and it's from my own experience and experience with clients, you know, especially people that say, I don't feel, I don't have emotions. No, we all have them and they'll, mm-hmm. they're all going to be felt and they, they'll come out when you'd least expect it in sideways ways. But every emotion you've ever stuffed is going to be felt before you die. And you, you can get in front of it, right. Do some healing, <laughs> deal with it or you know, or yeah, it'll bowl you over. Like your emotions will be felt. And then they drown you. And I'll say, you know, that was my first experience with um, even being open to therapy because, you know, it was taboo. You know, that's not something black people did at that time. And I was like, oh, I'm not doing that. Um, but there was a woman in my life who encouraged it. And she was like, you know what? I recommend you go speaking to, um, there was this incredible woman who worked at our school named Dr. Jermaine Graham. To this day, I still love her and owe her so much. But she opened her door to hear me out. And that was the difference. I just needed a, an ear, someone who was far removed from all of these situations. She didn't have a horse in the race and she could be completely objective. And she heard me out. And I was like, OK, so maybe therapy isn't so bad. Maybe I should, you know, take this a little bit serious. At that time, I didn't, honestly. I would only go speak to her on emergency basis when I got to that cry moment because I didn't cry. I was like, this is odd. This is weird. That's when I felt compelled to go speak with her. It wasn't until later in life that I felt the need to attend therapy on a regular basis and be consistent with the treatment. Yeah, and and going back to your your mom and uh, and and I've seen that I was raised by a single mom too, and there can be this, you know, I'm gonna overcompensate and make sure I'm raising a good man, and they buy into the worst stereotypes of what a man means, and so that <laughs> you just get taught this distorted version of a distortion to begin with, but because really, you know, encouraging anyone to not feel is is making them less resilient. Right. Mm-hmm. If if you can freely get upset and cry and, and feel guilty and feel happy and joyous, like, great, that you're really going, you take life with the punches and you can deal with it. That resilience is allowing your emotions to flow. Um, otherwise, yeah. You're, all you're doing you're is prolonging up. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I find, yeah. you know, when, when we're willing to feel like, like you in that moment, you're just overcome, start crying. And, and instead of running and hiding, I'm, I'm going to drink this way. I'm going to find a way to just shut this down even harder. Like, no, wow. I'm, all right. I'm going to let this happen. And it's probably because you're on a, a college campus that people stopped and said, are you all right? Because when I've had experiences of just breaking down and bawling in public. And once I remember uh, mm. at an airport, just sitting in an airport gate and I'm bawling, like noisy, ugly, bawling, not just a few tears. No one, like people avoid me. I became invisible. So I was like, like there's nothing more invisible in society than a crying man. Like no one, no one, mm. no one's approaching for shit. But maybe as a younger man, you know, you know, your peers are more willing. But 
out in public with the masses of our wonderful society. Like nobody gave a shit about me. You said something interesting there. It made me think about um, something Chris Rock said on one of his standups. He said, a man is expected to suffer in silence in this society. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to sit with that. Like, wow, we really are. Yeah. I, I say on the show all the time, like silence kills men. Mm. Right. And we've suffered long enough and, and suffering ends too often with guys trying to die yeah. or the suffering does lead to premature death from physical symptoms from, you know, uh, it creates disease. You know, like yeah. I said, every emotion is going to be felt and it can be felt eating an ulcer, right? It can be felt, mm-hmm. you know, just feeding um, decay and, and disease. And, you know, we all deserve better than that. Right. Mm-hmm. No, nobody, nobody needs to suffer. And so I'm, I'm so glad and, and proud of you for you that, that you chose to break that taboo of, of being silent, of, of keeping it all in and shutting it down. Cause again, it, yeah, it just harms you and it just passes on to everyone else, you know, yeah. you know, I, I don't think at the end of your life, you're going to be like, Oh man, I wish I just shut up more. <laughs> you know, like, like, what? That, that's not a deathbed thing no I've one. heard. Yeah. Like that's not a no thing. One. Yeah. Cool. So at what point for you, I ask, did you uh, reach that state of, you know what? I can't do this alone anymore. Oh, I don't recommend my path. So for, for me, <laughs> I, I, no, I kept everything quiet uh, from a really young age like you. I thought the world's unsafe. I, it's just me. Um, but I decided to, to check out. I, it was only after multiple mm-hmm. failed attempts to end my life that I realized, all right, well, I'm not good at this either. So maybe I'm supposed to be here and there's a better way that I can live my life. And that's what started me mm-hmm. to open up and, and see. But yeah, I had been offered help. Wow. I'd been sent to therapists and I would just lie. I would just tell them stories. Yep. Everything's great. Yep. See you. Bye. You know, um, cause again, it's for, for anyone you, until you are willing to be helped, nobody can help you. But you, you mentioned suicide attempts and I also had my experience with that. And it was something that after the fact, it, it was so devastating. I just receded inward. Um, I tried to shoot myself once and to your point, I wasn't good at that either. Um, I remember being at my girlfriend's house at the time she sleep. I'm in the living room. I had recently purchased a, um, AR 15. Why? No particular reason. And I had just reached my end. I was like, you know, nothing's looking up. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and I'm really, I'm over it. You know, I felt as if my life had been dealt more hurdles and adversity than any victories and wins. So I remember loading the magazine and I get to the last bullet. I pop it in the lower of the, of the weapon and you know, everything seems fine. Cock it. And I pulled the trigger. Nothing happens. And I start hearing this funny click, click, click noise. And mind you, I'm hysterically crying, but in silence. And it's one of those moments. And, you know, after I, came back to my logical state. I looked at the weapon, put the bullet in backwards. So all 29 bullets preceding that last one were in perfectly fine. And that was the wake up call that I needed. That was the victory. That was the win. Like, hey, it's not your time continue to push forward you're better than this and you know i never shared that i never talked about it you know i wrote about it in my book and that was a very uh, a dark time obviously it was even dark to write about just recollecting all of those emotions and feelings and trying to convey it through words 
um, for people to consume. So you could imagine when, you know, the book is released and people around me who have this idea of who I am and what I've been through. And, you know, you've always been so strong. So for them to read that, you know, it's one thing to hear, but when you can read it over and over again, it really settles into the mind of like, man, he's really had his fair share of dark moments. Well, I, I really appreciate you sharing that here. Um, I know it's not, not fun or easy, but I do believe it is necessary and, and really serves a, a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? Much like that bullet being put in wrong served a higher purpose. Right? Yeah. Cool. So what, what did prompt you to, to want to write your book, to share your story? That book saved my life. Um, that's the best way to describe it. Like that was my way of getting all the traumas out and everything I was experiencing, everything that I was holding for years because I shouldn't talk about what I'm feeling or what I'm going through. That was my out. It was very therapeutic for me. You know, granted it was difficult at times to, you know, think about those situations again. And the funny thing is when you're writing a memoir, there's still research in it. <laughs> like, you know, I found myself calling my mom and asking certain questions around certain situations that, you know, I was too young to remember Um, and just gaining her perspective and her insight about, you know, those situations Uh, specifically when she was pregnant, the doctor actually recommended that my parents support me. They said that, you know, if they go through with this pregnancy that I'll be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of my life and they would have to take care of me. Um, so it's more of a flight risk and a hazard to go forward. And he's like, Hey, you guys are young. You could try again. So hearing her tell me that, cause I always knew she was like, yeah, you know, I had complications with your pregnancy, but that's where it stopped. But as I'm finding out more, it's just like, wow, there's been adversity since birth. And it just clicked in my mind that I really do have a purpose because if my mother wasn't strong enough or wasn't solidified in her faith, I wouldn't be here today. Like I'm not confined to a wheelchair. Like, you know, I, I can walk, I can talk, I can, you know, see here, all of the things that, you know, most people probably take for granted I've been blessed with. So that very, uh, potentially dark and morbid situation turned into a beautiful blessing. So for me, I just have a, it gave me a different outlook on life. Like, you know what? I've been tested from the beginning. Hmm. Keeps so, going. So was, was, was that just a shitty doctor? Was he just misreading things? <laughs> like if, you, if you, you've been healthy all your life, like what, what the hell, do they, what do they think was wrong? Or? No lie, Andy, I've literally been healthy all my life. Yeah. I haven't had any major issues. All right, man. D- I hope your mom got a new doctor. That's all I'll say. <laughs> And uh, you know, w- one thing you mentioned when we talked earlier, you- you've actually never read your book? Uh, no, it's too hard for me. Um, and I just want to tell everyone watching this and listening, I wrote it. I wrote every single word. Um, but for me, and I went through numerous drafts and reviews and so forth, but I've never sat down and read it from top to bottom. Even in my you know editing process, a chapter at a time, go through. But as far as reading it top to bottom, it's hard. It's just, it's difficult. Like a lot of those situations I've moved past. I found some resolve there, but you know, some of those situations it's just too painful to sit there with. Um, however, I've made a, I made a commitment to myself, you know, when I decide to bring children to this world, I promise myself that I will read it before they're born. Because at some point, once they get older, I want to be able to give that to them so they can have a full scope of who their father was at one point in his life um, to understand that, hey, daddy is human. He's not perfect. He's, you know, don't put me on this pedestal. I made mistakes because I think that's very powerful. And mind you, I've never raised kids. So this is just me speculating here. But I just think that it's important to give them your failures and paint the whole collective picture as to what life is about, who you are, and don't shield them from the privilege of life. 
you know, do it in, in tablespoons because you don't want them to grow up, you know, paranoid or anything like that. But just have an understanding that, hey, life will test you. It's on you to continuously get up and keep going. Yeah. And, and again, as long as you get up and keep going, it, it, from my perspective, well, your life had no failures because you always kept going. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> cool. Well, good. I hope. And now you, you, you wrote your memoir. You were in your mid-20s? When you wrote yes, this? I, yeah. So I started that book when I was 21. Yeah. I finished it at 25 and it came out on my 26th birthday. All right. So <laughs> that, that's pretty young for a memoir. So do, do, you, do, you, uh, do you aspire to have so many more uh, adventures and wins that there'll be a part two of, of your story? <laughs> There's definitely going to be a part two, but way later in life, right. Right. I Good. need yeah. a break. Yeah. But I, you know, I say that because it's, you know, I've heard that frequently, like, man, you wrote a memoir, you're only in your twenties, like how, why? But for me, it just spoke to, they just don't have an understanding of who I am or what I've been through. You know, I even had close friends and families like, why are you writing a book about your life? What have you done? But then when they were able to sit with it and digest it, it's like, I get it now. You need it to do this. And I'm happy that I took that leap of faith um, to go about writing that book and incorporating the rawness and all of the traumatic experiences without fear. Like I truly feel brave for doing that. Cool. And you are so good oh, on you. you. Um, so you, you know, you've had your, your physical run-ins with the police. Uh, you, you've been in prison and there's one chapter in your book called, called thug life. Mm-hmm. So Please tell me what what Thug Life means. So Thug Life is an acronym uh, by the late, great Tupac Shakur. And it means the hate you give, the hate you give little infants fucks everyone. And what that means is that level of conditioning that you give our children and you continuously feed them that hatred of self and not being accepted in this larger society it's going to manifest into them and it's going to come out in a destructive facet. And that's what thug life represents. So I, I wanted you to, to, to share that because I never knew that hmm. seen it. I never realized it was an acronym seen I like had no freaking idea. So I imagine the majority of other middle-aged white guys, white, everyone has no freaking idea that that was an acronym. And it's like, why do you want to be thugs? I don't get it. Why? What's, you know, and it, again, it, that this almost the, the if, if, as groups have their, for lack of a better term, you know, secret language, it creates that more separation. So I'm like, oh, that's what me. Oh, well, wow. That's, that's a great freaking acronym. And, and it is, I right? totally, yeah, I totally get it. And <laughs> like, shit. And the interesting thing about it, that was actually his take on a movement. The intent for Thug Life was to be um, like a new Black Panther party. You know, his mother wasn't an amazing Panther. He came from that ilk of revolutionaries. Mm. So for him, that was his wave and that was his responsibility within the movement, yeah. Thug Life. Cool. So he, it was much more political than, than perhaps the white society seeing it. Oh, it's, it, you know, right. gangsta, gangsta wannabe, more of that and more of that stuff. And it's just, oh, glor- glamorizing crime. He was really, uh, really, uh, there was a higher purpose. No, uh, since you haven't read the book, <laughs> at one point you also taught in this chapter on women and you say that you cheated on every girlfriend or woman that you ever cared about. Mm-hmm. And because you, you, you said that it was because you didn't have any respect for a woman's worth. Mm-hmm. When, or should I say when, when or if did you realize that wasn't, wasn't helping you? Oh, I, de- I definitely realized. So let's be clear there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I realized that when um, I had went through a terrible heartbreak and, you know, uh, relationship, I had recently moved to the Washington, D.C. area. um, And that's when I really um, got to sit with myself. And it just gave me a time to what I consider a world of mirrors. I was surrounded by myself. And I couldn't escape 
the images being reflected back to me, you know, and at that time they were poor images because of the way I had exemplified myself, you know, through the course of how I treated women. And for me, I just viewed it as, yo, this is karma for all of the wrong that you've done, the lies that you told, um, the selfishness that you exhibited it. Because for me, it was all about what I wanted and when I wanted it. And I think there's this huge misconception that the way that a man treats his mother and his sister, that's how he treats that's not true. So let's just get that out there. That's not true. Because I was raised by my mother. I had a great respect for my mother. Um, don't get me wrong, you know, we had our spats, but she didn't raise me to treat women in that facet. So the fact that I demonstrated myself that way, it just spoke to the lack of respect that I had for their gentleness and them as human beings, first and foremost. Um, but I say a lot of it reflected back to what I saw from men around me growing up. Men around me really uh, perpetuated, you know, having multiple women at their disposal. And, you know, it was in the music that I listened to. Um, my peers also participated in such actions. So for me, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. But again, you know, you get a little bit older, you leave this trail of tears and all of this destruction only to run right into it when it happens to you. And at that point, I say, you know what, this isn't right. <laughs> you know, like I made women feel like this. Yeah, I got to chill out because <laughs> it didn't feel good. Yeah, good. It's good to, to recognize that. And yeah, we, you know, I share often, you know, we, we can't change anything until we're aware of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So until you like feel it, notice it, you know, can have a bit of empathy, you see, you know, the, the effects that you have on people the, and you experience the effects that other people's actions have on you and you, and you don't like it, then you can realize, Oh, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. But um, yeah. so Ishmael, you've, uh, you've gone through a lot in your, in your, you know, still young life. And, you know, you've learned the, the healing and the power of sharing your story and, and the power and healing of, of therapy and forgiving yourself. So I, I wonder, you know, you've, you've gone through the stereotypes, living different ways for you. What does it mean to be a man today? Responsible. Um, taking being accountable you know for the choices that you make as a man and setting an example you know for everyone around you and that's the big those are the biggest factors and just exemplifying yourself as being disciplined discipline is the key to everything because if you are able to put one foot in front of another there's always going to be forward progress. No matter what obstacles you walk into, it's great to walk into them instead of falling to them. Hmm. And is there one thing, it might be one of those things or something else entirely, is there, is there something you wish more men knew? That it's okay to feel. like that, it, Just that simple. Um, it's okay to express what you're going through. I think it's imperative that you find individuals that are emotionally intelligent enough and equipped with the tools to give you that space um, to act as a sounding board and just encourage you to do more of it. And I just really feel like that's, you know, every man needs that. Cool. Cool. Couldn't agree more. Um... What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to getting a haircut at some point. <laughs> no, all jokes aside. Um, I'm looking for, so I'm working on a book right now. And this one is completely different than my first one. Uh, my first one being the memoir. This one, it's untitled right now. So I'm still working through that. But it's just a polar opposite of my first book. This one is actually fiction, and it's going to be a series. I can give you that first. <laughs> but I'm excited for it because it's a new challenge. I'm someone who is a thrill junkie, admittedly. And for me, my thrills are associated with overcoming challenges. 
And, you know, for someone else that may seem like, or that may appear as achieving a goal, but for me, it's like, okay, I've never done that before. I'm going to go do it. So that's the thrill for me. Like, okay, cool. I'm going to do this and I'm going to kill it. So I'm excited. It's different. I had to take a step back from writing to go do some research and understand the craft of fiction writing because it's a polar opposite from, again, you know, the nonfiction and the, the, the memoir lane. So I had to take some time to re- research some of the people that I consider are greats in that space. Cool. Cool. So w- what's the best way people can uh, follow you, connect with you, see what you're up to? Uh, Instagram, it's Ishmael, I-S-M-A-E-L underscore Brown, B-R-O-W-N. And Twitter, it's Ishmael underscore Brown and the number three. Cool. And where can people find your book? Is it, is it available you know, everywhere? Or? It is available on Amazon. It is also available on my website, which is IshmaelBrown.com. And that link is also in my bio on Instagram and Twitter. Cool. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your book with the world and your time today here with us. Um, fucking take care of yourself. Be safe wherever <laughs> you're going. I, 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 it's fucking heartbreaking. They have to like really say that and mean it so much to, to black yeah. men I'm meeting. Um, but damn it. Um, yeah. Cause you're, you're in New York city, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. Keep your head down, man. All right. And you shouldn't have like, no, put, fuck that. Fuck, no, sorry. Put your head up. <laughs> Put, put your head up. I'm like, well, I'm going to want to, you just talked about not shrinking and here I am trying to shrink you. <laughs> All right. Just be safe. All right. You know how to do it. Thank you. Um, visit realmenfield.org, everyone. We'll have uh, links for all of Ishmael's contacts and, and books and ways for you to uh, get in touch with him and follow him and, and uh, encourage him to have enough adventures for that, that memoir part two at some point. <laughs> <laughs> That one's going to be way better, way more positive. (laughs) And uh, thank you for joining us. Wherever you're listening to Real Men Fail, give a like, a subscription, share, a review is always appreciated. And until next time, don't suffer in silence. Talk to someone. Reach out to me if you don't have someone to talk to. Or Buggish Man, he'll talk to you too. (laughs) (laughs) Please. All right. Be well, everybody. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Join the private Real Men Feel Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Real Men Feel. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now. It takes less than a minute and helps other people discover Real Men Feel.